0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Talkville 21 podcast. As the war in Ukraine and the French elections have rightly drawn most media attention for the past couple of weeks, we thought it might be helpful to take a step back and explore other topics of interest, namely the fallout of the COVID epidemic, And the challenges faced by the global economy in transitioning to cleaner sources of energy. For this episode, we sat down with Charles Dumas, chief economist of T.S. Lombard. An analyst with a long and storied career at institutions such as The Economist, J.P. Morgan, and the London School of Economics, Charles is a prescient doomsayer having predicted the dot com bubble of the late 1990s, the U.S. housing bust of the late 2000s, and the slow global recovery in the aftermath of the 2008 recession. He is author of many books, including Populism and Economics, which covers the economic causes of the recent challenge to the liberal consensus of the post-Cold War era, and Decarbonomics, which focuses on the challenging transition to a carbon-free economic system after the COVID epidemic. Our discussion focuses primarily on ecological economics, but also touches on his thoughts on growing economic nationalism, China's ongoing housing and emissions crises, and the broader threats faced by the global supply chain. We hope you enjoy it. All right, well, uh, Charles Dumas, welcome to the program. Welcome to you, too. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Why don't we just jump in and start with a few questions related to the book about the global economy? So the first question I have for you is, uh, what are the biggest challenges facing Western economies in the post-COVID era? Well, in many
1: ways, it's the same old, same old. That is to say, how do you get policy going so that um, you get uh, sufficient growth? The basic problem is that productivity goes up all the time. uh, And of course, therefore, the potential for jobs uh, doesn't go up necessarily um, if there isn't demand. And what we find is that on a global basis, even in the last sort of 30 years in which um, uh, have been largely monetarist driven, uh, let's say monetarists have dominated the policy uh, framework, even in those last 30 years, since 1990, you've had advanced countries averaging deficits of um, budget deficits, that is, of 4% of GDP, which implies that um, there's a persistent uh, shortfall of um, investment opportunities to match the rate of saving. And that is uh, that, of course, has been accompanied by the substantial increase of government debts. The, and therefore, it poses quite a big problem for the future, because um, people more and more are prepared to accept government deficits to create stimulus um, for economies, and of course we're seeing this particularly in the United States, but it's only fair to say that deficits um, are in themselves uh, additional to, um, to debt ratios, and, and um, therefore they they beg the question of whether or not we're going to eventually get an excess of debt.
0: Hmm. That- leads me to two, two other small questions, if you don't mind speculating. Uh, what's the likelihood that uh, we'll end up, or at least the United States will end up in a situation similar to Japan in the mid-90s? Well,
1: I don't think it's all that likely, actually, because the um, United States has much of the supply side vigor that Japan doesn't have. I mean, if we go back 30 or 40 years and and remember what it was you wanted to buy in those days, it was either a Sony Walkman or else it was a Sharp fax machine or else it was a Honda Civic or maybe maybe a Toyota Corolla. Either way, it was Japanese stuff. Uh, and now the Japanese do not have anything like the product that they had in those days, uh, back in the 1980s particularly. So I think it's only fair to say that given that the supply side impulse in, on the tech front has largely come from the United States, that um, the US doesn't actually have any likelihood of relapsing into the Japanese mode of the 1990s. But
0: we're still facing a crisis of unsustainable debt.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it, it remains the case that the debt ratio of the US government is is now well over 100% of GDP and um, likely to increase. Hmm.
0: Again, this is speculation, but this is all related to to moving away from the monetarist policies that dominated the global economy between uh, 1991 and 2016, or Mm -hmm. perhaps earlier even. The debt crisis is one of the principal dangers of this. What do you think is driving this from a political perspective uh, in the United States and in Europe? Well,
1: I guess um, it's really fairly simple in a way. Governments want to um, satisfy the requirements and hopes and aspirations of of voters Hmm. because governments want to be reelected. And so so why are they doing what they're doing? Well, because because that's what voters want. Uh, People want full employment. Uh, the problem is that um, under the aegis of tech advances, um, a large quantity of the growth of wages has occurred um,
0: at the top end and the bottom end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the things you discuss rather thoroughly in the book, the sacrificing of the present economy for, or rather the, the lack of sacrifices made in the present for, for, uh, for an effective transition to a, to a more sustainable economy. You touched on on labor there, just Ramon, employment rather, and I just wanted to 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 ask you about your thoughts on the Great Resignation. That's currently one of the big buzzwords in media.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it is. Uh, you know, a lot of us have. Um, spent uh, the last year and a half or or, or more working from home mm-hmm. and um and and of course you know for, for obvious reasons we quite like it and and some people are having a bit bit of difficulty getting back in harness again and um and and doing what they used to do out of uh, well out of necessity really mm-hmm. um and in particular when it comes to reviving the economy I think one of the issues here is that the, the central banks have pumped money into the economy in a very praiseworthy fashion, to be quite honest. But nevertheless, uh, what, what this um, monetarist uh, approach lacks, or, or actually it's not even monetarist, it's Keynesian as well as monetarist, I mean, because it's budget deficits as well as um, central bank um, pump priming, but um, what it lacks is the, is the specificity. Um, Specifically, uh, street level businesses have, um, to a great degree, been much more heavily affected by the pandemic than ordinary businesses uh, or manufacturing businesses or industrial sort of activities of one kind or another. And as a result, in fact, of course, people have been sitting around at home without so much money to spend. Uh, without having to spend so much money and um, they've actually therefore uh, ordered a lot of stuff online and so manufacturing has done pretty nicely over the last year and in fact there's significant shortages that have, have blown up but in the meantime um, you've got street level businesses like bars and restaurants which um, which were completely put out of action by the pandemic and um, and those sort of street level businesses um, need recapitalization. You know, if you've done, if you've done without it, revenue for a year, then the in, initial instinct is to gouge the consumer. Uh, and there's a little bit of that going on, of course, which is part of the um, problem with inflation in this recovery.
0: Well, I was actually wondering about that. That sort of leads me to a question on, um, on the European recovery sitting in paris i'm noticing that there's a lot of a lot of new storefronts opening up actually because th- things seem to be going quite well here from what i understand it's similar in london my question to you is how is this recapitalization going in europe
1: well i mean my perspective is uh, is personal and i was in venice quite recently and i went to one of my favorite cafes in the world, actually, which is Florian's in St. Mark's Square. Very famous cafe that's been around since about 1720 or 1710, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of um, high baroque, if you like, as an interior. Um, and it closed down for a while, about six months ago or nine months ago, but it's restarted again. And the point is, you couldn't ever stop Florian's from restarting because it's such a beautiful place and so notorious and it can charge more or less whatever it likes, including sort of like 10 euros for a coffee, uh, which you certainly wouldn't have to pay in your local cafe in Paris. Restarting some of these businesses is fine. But in London, you know, you go into a pub and um, and you ask for a pint of bitter and uh, what used to cost you four pounds, they're now asking seven pounds for. And uh, that's all very well and fine and dandy but the fact of the matter is that um, uh, as a means of recapitalizing the um the the, the pubs uh, i'm not sure that overcharging for beer is the right way forward um because what it tends to do is to discourage consumers uh, and one of the problems we have in the whole sort of um pandemic recovery process is that uh, consumers are still a little bit nervous and, and un, un, understandably so, because, I mean, this disease is pretty unpleasant if you get it, if you're of any age, which I certainly
0: am. Of course. I think there's, a, there's an important distinction to make to some degree between, well, one that you touch on, which is the, the, the difference in spending patterns between the older and the younger, because I've, I've, I've been noticing a lot of lines around the blocks, notably, and a lot of almost uh, impulsive consumption when it comes to movie theaters, when it comes to bars, when it comes to restaurants in recent months, trying to make up for lost time, but also uh, between, well, one, Europe and, and the United States, and also between blue states in the United States and red states, where there seems to be more of an onus on blue states, where uh, people are a little bit more gun shy about consuming. Do you feel that's, uh, that's an accurate description?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, you know, the, people's attitudes towards these sort of risks do vary a lot. Uh, you know, there is a sort of gung ho type of approach in a, in much of the sort of red state, uh, I guess you'd call it the um, Republican states in the United States. In other words, in the center, led obviously by Texas, and um, and to some extent a reluctance to um, fly in the face of um, the disease on the part of um, people in the um, coastal states, whether it's California or New York. So in that sense, there is an issue here. And there's also an issue between the young and the old, in as much as older people who, who tend, if you don't mind my saying so, to have the bulk of the income, um, are a little bit more reluctant to go and mix it in and, and take the risks that are, that are entailed by, uh, well, I won't say clubbing, but um, going to restaurants where...
0: There's not, not not much separation between the tables and that kind of thing. Of course. Well, why don't we move on to uh, to economic nationalism and the impact that it's having on clean energy, uh, or specifically the, the 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 transition to to a more uh, ecologically sustainable uh, energy system? I was very interested because one of the things that your book doesn't really touch on is uh, is the significance or you know the potential significance of nuclear power. I wanted to know what are your thoughts on it. Well, the, the
1: difficulty with nuclear and the reason I really avoided talking about it in any kind of extensive way is that um, no one has actually figured out what the total cost of um, cleaning up after a nuclear uh, in, in the decommissioning process with a, with a nuclear reactor, because radioactive materials remain toxic for thousands of years in many instances. So we don't actually know what the close down cost is for nuclear. And so we don't really know what the all up cost is uh, as a result um, in terms of uh, the simple cost of fuel. But what we do know is that um, as a result of uh, technological improvements over the last 10 years, the um, onshore wind generated electricity and particularly solar generated electricity is now significantly cheaper than electricity generated from coal and gas so the result is that a very large quantity of the world's energy uh, infrastructure is being made obsolescent and uh, you know the process is is ongoing in the sense that um, the projections are that solar electricity will will be well under half the cost of coal and gas generated electricity by 2030 so potentially over the next 20 or 30 years You've got um, an impact on the, uh, in terms of obsolescence and so-called stranded assets on the capital equipment of the world, which is probably worse than we had in, in the world wars.
0: That actually brings me to a, a transportation issue, or rather uh, issues related directly to the transition. Solar and wind both suffer from one specific issue, which is that they're not capable of functioning when it's not windy and you know when the sun isn't shining and yeah, the second course.
1: one the sun goes down you want to turn the lights on so exactly. um, lo and behold there isn't very much solar electricity around
0: and of course the 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 big issue behind both of that is that there's no ability or there's currently no ability for either solar or wind production to be stored or yeah. transported uh yeah. I, I imagine that your your response to this has something to do with uh creative distru- uh, disruption
1: well, no, no. My response to that is that is that the uh, innovations that are necessary to um, to solve these problems of transmission and um, and storage, which uh, which you're quite right to highlight, um, those innovations uh, will only occur if the penalties for um, fossil fuel usage are upped by um, means of um, sort of price on carbon. Mm. So in other words, something like the EU system of domestic carbon pricing and um, the border adjustment mechanism is essential. And, And some form of carbon accounting and carbon tax is going to be necessary if we're going to achieve this transition. And of course, it's not going to
0: happen fast. I couldn't agree more. The secondary question actually is one of the cost because a, a transition to a carbon uh, neutral or carbon negative economy would require uh, substantial public investment or inversely a substantial cost to the average consumer. And already minor measures to combat the use of fossil fuels have resulted in pretty significant uh, movements. For example, the uh, the Gilles des Jaunes in France. What impact do you think this increase in government spending related or government spending or taxation for an economic transition to a more ecologically sound uh, economy, what impact do you think that will have on populations and will it be a a generating factor for economic nationalism?
1: Well, uh, there's always that risk, of course, and banging the drum is the best way of uh, of inducing votes in many instances, Uh, and that's been proven time and again. Um, We've we've seen it um, in Britain, we've seen it in France, we've seen it in the United States. Um, Having said all of that though, I think it's only fair to say that uh, I go back to where I was at the start, which is that the tendency of the private sector to save exceeds the availability of uh, profitable opportunities, profitable investment opportunities. And um, since after the event, saving equals investment by definition, The only way you can make this up is by government deficits. And in fact, that's what's happened for the last 30 years. So all I'm saying here is that um, quite possibly the um, process of spending that's necessary to, um, to combat with climate change um, may actually provide the innovations and the exp- the profitable opportunities, particularly because solar and um, wind power are now cheaper than uh, than conventional fossil fuels. It may provide the um, conventional opportunities for um, for a profitable investment. The problem is that, of course, um, it also in- entails possible run up of government debt, and that's where carbon tax comes in. You see, because um, Essentially, a carbon tax raises revenue, but as you rightly point out, it raises revenue most, of course, from the um, from the poor, from poor households, and and you you get something which, um, I, certainly over here in Britain, is referred to as fuel po- poverty, uh, and that is that is a substantial risk, and quite clearly, any kind of um, venture into a carbon tax will raise a large quantity of money, at least in the first instance, therefore will. Uh, motivate uh, private investment to um go into very large quantity of ventures which might otherwise not be uh, embarked on Uh, and think particularly of um of the transmission and storage problems that you were talking about earlier you know so potentially um in a solo world chad in the middle of the sahara will become the new saudi arabia of the world so to speak and, of course, Saudi Arabia gets quite a bit of sun, too, being largely desert. So one way or another, what we're really talking about is how to get the electricity from Chad to northern Germany and uh, Scotland and places like that. Um, and, of course, um, that is a massive uh, and uh, expensive potential process, but it needs to be done if, um, if we're going to um, move to anywhere near carbon, uh, net zero carbon. And net zero in terms of uh, carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions is the end of the beginning. Net zero is not the end in itself because it's when you reach net zero that the level of um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere will be at its maximum. Because at that point, uh, you will not be adding anything. And because it's at its maximum, that's when global warming will be at its greatest. So the the world's temperature will carry on rising for several years, probably decades, after we reach net zero. Um, And so um, essentially, if we want to unwind the uh, global warming process, we actually have to move to net negative, which makes it a very, very long-term project indeed. But it does mean, amongst other things, that um, there's uh, potential, very substantial investment opportunities and money to be made by people uh, investing in this kind of stuff of transmission and storage, that is. And as well as large investment opportunities, they will be that much larger if the matter is provoked by a carbon tax that um, has the effect of, uh, of, of motivating uh, private investment to, uh, to to engage in these activities.
0: Certainly, I have to come back to the issue of the, uh, the impact on, on the average spender. That, the, that this sort of transition would have, because even in a situation wherein uh, energy could be efficiently transported, there's still a massive transition that would require getting rid. Well, first, the the running up of costs on uh, fuel for uh, for automobiles, for, uh, for example, or the transition to to electric vehicles, both of which represent a substantial cost for the average uh, the average consumer. Is there any way, or rather? Are there any measures being taken by any governments to to sort of address this this looming issue, especially in an era of uh, increasing global inequality.
1: Well, I mean, for starters, any kind of carbon tax is going to have its biggest impact in percentage terms on the spending of poorer households. And so you're absolutely right to say there is an issue there. And quite clearly, quite a large proportion of the um, proceeds will actually have to be devoted towards, in effect, subsidising uh, those households and making them good for the expenses that uh, are necessary to um, discourage them from too much fossil fuel activity. And when it comes to electric cars, um, I, I'm, I'm less concerned, I've got to say, because I think that um Over time, the declining cost of um, solar powered electricity, but also wind powered electricity, uh, means that uh, relative to where we are now, uh, the cost of running an electric car will be falling and um, falling in real terms. And probably falling in nominal terms. So, so I, I, I don't see the cars or the transport sector actually as being uh, the big problem, uh, it's specifically not so much cars. Um, obviously you've got a bigger problem with trucks where hydrogen may come into play, uh, hydrogen power, and you've got a much bigger problem with, with aircraft um and and i don't think i know the answer to those sort of things in fact of course i shouldn't know the answer to them because the whole point about economics is to set up policy apparatus which um uh, motivates people to do the right thing and uh, that's really what i'm talking about when i talk about the necessity and almost inevitability of a carbon tax along the lines that they already have in the um well, they don't actually have it, but they're heading that way in the European Union.
0: Well, I think in some ways, in some respects, the COVID-19 crisis has been a blessing in disguise, given the impact that it's had on the aviation industry. They're already, from what I understand, they're already engaging in massive restructuring. And some of it is uh, very ben- beneficial for uh, for a carbon transition.
1: Yeah, I can't, I can't argue with that. It's just that um, you know, like everyone else, I like to travel, and um, and and I'm not desperately happy about um, restricting the opportunities.
0: Absolutely, but that actually touches on another point that you uh, you evoke in your book: the end of 1991-2016 global order, wherein there was so much uh, interconnectivity between different regions. Um, Obviously, uh, there's been a a massive increase in economic nationalism since the beginning of um, of the the Covid crisis. Uh, And there's also been significantly more attention on the importance of producing uh, within national or uh, perhaps regional borders. How how do you think this will impact the the ability of regions like Chad, for example, or Saudi Arabia or Africa rather on the whole? Uh, to, to export energy uh, in a massive scale? And what do you think the impact will be on, on places that can't necessarily get the same opportunities when it comes to wind and solar energy, such as the European Union? Well, I think the European Union is, um, in many
1: ways, the, the place where the shoe pinches hardest, probably Japan, too, in terms of um, solar power. Um, but actually, in a more general sense, what we've had is uh, an upsurge of nationalism, which started, of course, in, in 2018 with um, Donald Trump's refusal uh, of arrangements that uh, had been dreamed up by uh, Mnuchin, uh, his Secretary of the Treasury in, in Beijing. And um, uh, the the Chinese uh, have thrown off any pretense uh, at globalism ever since, uh, and, uh, and now on a relatively... Uh, aggressive line of reasoning of their own Uh, and in particular one of the things that they've adopted is something they call the dual circulation problem policy I mean and the dual circulation policy is fundamentally to do with uh, import substitution. And the big change in import ratios in China has already happened, actually, and occurred between about 2007 and seven, eight at the peak and 2019 or so at the trough. And a lot of it's already happened. But the dual circulation policy involves them moving to import ratios relative to the total economy, which are more in the line of the United States, which is about 15-16%. Or Japan, which is another sort of big economy with, with lots of imports. Um, and uh, the Chinese import ratios were well over 20% at the peak and have come down a little bit below. Um, but the basic point here is that they're still moving down the line of trying to encourage consumer economy with, on the demand side, therefore more consumption, and on the supply side, less heavy industry and more uh, high tech and services. So uh, that's a kind of mix that that takes you down the road towards a lesser rate of importation because um, at the moment, the heavy industry sectors in in China import an enormous amount, particularly from Germany. And so in the first instance, what the Chinese are doing are cutting, de-Americanizing, so to speak, their import uh, content, which is very favorable, of course, for Um, people who can substitute for the Americans, namely the Koreans and the Taiwanese who who send the high-tech stuff to China uh, and substitute for what they were previously importing from the United States. But that's just phase one. Phase two is to um, lower import ratios in general. And phase two, therefore, um, is most easily achieved by uh, the traditional approach of picking the low-hanging fruit which is to say you um, save on industrial imports first uh, and tech imports second, because it's much harder to substitute for tech than it is to substitute for industry. Uh, And the industrial imports are mostly from the European Union. So this business of nationalism, which has broken out, Is not entirely to do with COVID-19, it's at least in part because of the um, competition, if you like, for economic primacy in the world between um, the United States and China. And the Chinese response to all of this is of a type that is deleterious for uh, the European Union's exportation to China, uh, and in particular for people who are very heavily dependent on exports, which of course most European economies are. So the Chinese approach is some degree regional, that is to say, it's relatively favorable for, for Japan and Southeast Asia, um, but it's, uh, it's unfavorable for um, Europe. And in particular, um, what we've learned from COVID-19 is that security of supply implies holding quite a lot more stock and much less of this just-in-time-type supply chain-type activity that we've had before under globalization. And so the result of that is is that people are trying to pull their suppliers closer to them, and therefore uh, that creates this kind of regionalization and and nationalism that you've referred to.
0: All right. One of the things you evoke in your book is the comprehensive agreement on investment between the European Union and China. I wanted to know... Because here you seem to suggest that China is pulling away quite quite substantially from uh, from any well, from further contact with with the European Union, or rather at least when it comes to manufacturing. I imagine that when it comes to financial markets, there's still a desire for integration, at least on the side of the Chinese.
1: Yeah, and I, I, the Chinese, I mean, like everyone else, you know, you you have more than one goal in life. The Chinese amongst other things, they do want to reduce their dependence on imports, but they also want to have an international currency in the form of the renminbi or yuan or whatever you want to call it. The internationalization of the yuan has been inhibited, of course, by Chinese habit of slapping controls on exports or of capital or movements of capital in general. So in that sense, the plan for an EU-China investment accord was um, was an understandable product from the Chinese standpoint, um, and from the European standpoint, of course, they just need somewhere to put all that money which um, people in Germany save and doesn't have an outlet so much an investment in in Europe itself. So, so that's um, that's part of the sort of incentive structure here. Um, but um, you know, the unfortunate thing is that Chinese are uh, 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 simultaneously pursuing policies that, um, that don't necessarily help with, with internationalizing the Yuan, and in particular, the sort of bullying that's gone on vis-a-vis Australia, but also um, more recently, the, the problems with Evergrande. Uh, and this um, this this whole property sector in China, which has been a, ba- a major force motivating the high growth rates that they've had over there. Um, that is to say, the real estate sector has been a big part of it. And um, it's a sort of public-private partnership, if you like. Um, and uh, to some extent, um, that's going to slow down. And as we see it, chances are that uh, the Chinese will pursue the usual reflex stimulus policies that... That happen when there's a slowdown and that um, it'll take about a year or so for people to realize that this time it isn't working quite as well because um, the, the underlying motivation of, of, of Chinese people has been um, changed in particular in the old days so well until recently uh, saving in China in households is very much to a great degree been um, channeled into uh, real estate and housing um, and um, what we're seeing with, with with the Evergrande situation is that uh, potentially um, that'll be a loss making um, investment.
0: Yes, because the housing market is uh, set to crash. Well, rather, I don't know if it's set to crash in China, but it's looking it's looking particularly unsteady. Uh, what, yeah, what-
1: it's shaky, shaky. It's a ba- it's a basic problem. And um, you know, if, if the housing market is shaky, shaky, and I'm a saver, what am I going to do? I'm going to cut back a little bit on, um, on what you might call um high ticket items, uh, in particular sort of, you know, foreign holidays and that kind of stuff. Um, and so um, discretionary spending of one kind or another is liable to suffer. So this switch into a consumer orientated economy uh, gets slowed down by um, the kind of things that are happening in the, in the property market in, in, in China.
0: Well, from what I understand, the Chinese government seems to be doing its best to minimize the damage to the average household, to uh, to contain the uh, the Evergrande crisis uh, as much as possible to, to 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 people involved directly in the sector. For example, uh, I believe I um, I read uh, earlier this week in Bloomberg that there was a push to get the executives responsible for the crisis in Evergrande to begin paying off both foreign and domestic debt out of personal accounts. Uh, well, what exactly do you think of these? These sorts of initiatives from the chinese government these attempts to, to to limit the crisis
1: well i i mean i i completely understand that um, what we're listening to here is a, a sort of egalitarian uh, motivation that you kind of expect from a communist government to be quite honest Um, and that's all very well and good but um, the majority of spending uh, is done by relatively well-off Chinese so emphasizing the benefits to the poorer households may well be something that um, makes sense politically for Xi Jinping over the long run but um, in terms of the performance of the economy over the next three to five years, it's probably not very beneficial.
0: Absolutely. I want to talk about uh, the expansion of, uh, or rather the, the, the ongoing expansion of Chinese manufacturing and specifically the Belt and Road Initiative. You suggest that China will need to back away from industrial exports. What impact will this have on the Belt and Road? Well, I mean, first
1: of all, I don't actually think that they're going to step away from industrial exports. I think they probably, at this point, if anything, may well find themselves uh, obliged to allow some slippage in the yuan's exchange rate against the dollar, very specifically to uh, encourage industrial exports, particularly if um, we're right about the domestic economy uh, and the expansion of domestic demand being um, relatively weak over the next two to three years because of the ever Evergrande type and the property, the real estate market problems so you know that's the background and the background is therefore that they quite like to encourage exports and exports of course are much cheaper coming out of china than most other places and uh, and in particular they have a grip on supplies in a large quantity of fields so that for example steel uh, which is um half half the world's steel is produced in china Then you get into a conflict about um, the issue of how much you really care about climate change, because the thing is that what Bill Gates' excellent book on climate change suggests is that um, something in the region of 10% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from steel manufacture and another 8% from cement. And both of those are closely connected, of course, to construction activity, uh, which is quite a big consumer. Uh, well it's the biggest consumer of cement obviously and um, and and quite a big consumer of steel too as is the car industry so um, essentially um, the whole question of um, climate change is bound up with um, population growth which is something which um, uh, you know if if there was population shrinkage you wouldn't have nearly such a problem with climate change as you do as it is, particularly in relation to the agricultural side of greenhouse gas emissions, but also um, in relation to um, steel and cement, which are very difficult to substitute for, um, For and, and the, the difficulty therefore is that the Chinese policy, which is directed towards um, getting to net zero by 2060 in their case, is in conflict with the uh, policy of wanting to encourage um, exports.
0: And that's, of course, the bind. I think that was most visible recently with the uh, increase in importation of coal from, uh, from Australia, despite political concerns, in order to yeah. fund. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts, by the way, on that particular energy crisis? Well, I mean, the, the, I,
1: I, apparently it's worse in India than it is in China, the dependence on coal, Uh, And of course, we also have a situation in Germany where, um, going back to what you were asking about nuclear, the Germans, in a sort of slightly overexcited uh, moment um, after Fukushima disaster in 2011, there was a sort of very substantial vote in Stuttgart for the Greens. And Mrs. Merkel's response to that was to insist on all the nuclear power plants in Germany closing down. One of the results is that they now burn uh, a large quantity of lignite, which is um, politely known as brown coal, um, which of course was very common uh, in the old days um, in northern uh, Bohemia and in in southern in, in southern parts of um, Saxony. Um, and um, as a result, uh, in the old days, when I used to go to Prague in the early 90s a lot, if you went in February, your, your nose was rasping after about um, three hours on the ground because um, they were burning brown coal. And I remember once when I first went to Warsaw in, in about February of 1991, we, we went up to this, we were in this sort of very high rise hotel And I looked out of my window and there was a sort of orange cloud below me that was essentially um, the entire atmosphere of Warsaw was clogged up with this um, sulphur dioxide, which is uh, the product of of when you burn lignite. Um, And and it's it's a sort of massive greenhouse gas, of course, Um, but uh, the result is that uh, Germany is now burning a lot of um, lignite, too unnecessarily, whereas France, on the other hand, which um, uh, has most of its uh, electricity from nuclear sources, as you probably know, um, has, has much lower emissions per head than, than Germany. Um, so, so uh, and this whole issue is, is pretty important vis-a-vis China, which after all accounts for about 28% of uh, the world's carbon dioxide emissions.
0: I imagine it's going to get worse. I wanna get back to the question of the developing world specifically with the, the issues of demographic transition and uh, the the increase in population that we're going to see in the next uh, in the next 70 or so years how exactly will it be possible is there any way that we can fund an effective ecological transition given the, the the lack of critical infrastructure in the developing world one and two how is that possible specifically within the Chinese sphere of influence where a lot of these developments are dependent on manufacturing that's dependent on coal well I mean, to what extent is it dependent on coal?
1: That, that I suppose, is the question. And um, if I had to say, where is the big in, increase of population occurring? I think it's probably Africa and Latin America. Yeah. And in both those places, um, they are going to be primary beneficiaries of uh, solar electricity. Yeah. Uh, specifically, um, the, the fact that solar electricity is cheaper as a source of electricity than coal produced electricity. Um, is a, a good reason for expecting uh, those populations to be reasonably well catered for, taking a very long-run view about things. Um, so, so in the long run, I, d- I don't think the transition is actually so I- impossible as, uh, as occasionally one, one makes out. The real difficulty, I think, lies in the um, invalidity and obsolescence of um, so much existing infrastructure in um, the developed world, uh, in in the United States, in Europe, and in China.
0: All right. Well, I think that more or less uh, gets to the bottom of a lot of issues that I wanted to touch on. Uh, there are a few more things that I would I would love to discuss if we have the time, but I, I don't necessarily think that's going to be possible. So instead. I am going to ask you one final question, which is a, a slightly less serious question. You mentioned uh, your your favorite cafe in uh, in Venice, and one of the things you mentioned in your book, well as well as in this interview, is the increasing price of beer in London. So, my question to you is ultimately, uh, coffee or beer? Well, I guess um,
1: I like both. As a matter of fact, I've always been a little bit more of a both and man than an either or type, uh, and um, I, I tend to start the day with a. A pretty high-powered cup of coffee, and um, and and then um, about sometime around mid morning or late morning, I like to have a little beer with before lunch. So um, uh, I don't see the two as being in conflict with one another.
0: Harmony, of course. All right. Well, I think that more or less wraps it up for the interview. In that case, Charles, thank you for joining us today. This has been TalkPhil uh, Twenty One. Great. Well, thank you very much, Shane. Thank you for listening to the TalkVille21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com, and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz, number 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompatech.com.